Chapter 16 of The God of All Comfort. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The God of All Comfort by Hannah Whittall Smith. Chapter 16 Conformed to the Image of Christ. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's ultimate purpose in our creation was that we should finally be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ was to be the firstborn among many brethren, and his brethren were to be like him. All the discipline and training of our lives is with this end in view, and God has implanted in every human heart a longing, however unformed and unexpressed, after the best and highest it knows. Christ is the pattern of what each one of us is to be when finished. We are predestinated to be conformed to his image, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are to be partakers of the divine nature with Christ. We are to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. We are to share his resurrection life and walk as he walked. We are to be one with him as he is one with the Father. And the glory God gave to him, he is to give to us. And when all this is brought to pass, then and not until then, will God's purpose in our creation be fully accomplished, and we stand forth in His image and after His likeness. Our likeness to His image is an accomplished fact in the mind of God, but we are, so to speak, in the manufactory as yet, and the great master workman is at work upon us. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they that are also heavenly. And as we have been born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. It is deeply interesting to see that this process, which was begun in Genesis, is declared to be completed in Revelation, where the one like unto the Son of Man gave to John this significant message to the overcomers. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Since name always means character in the Bible, this message can only mean that at last God's purpose is accomplished and the spiritual evolution of man is completed. He has been made what God intended from the first. So truly into his likeness and image as to merit having written upon him the name of God. Words fail before such a glorious destiny as this, but our Lord foreshadows it in his wonderful prayer when he asks for his brethren, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. Could oneness be closer or more complete? Paul also foreshadows this glorious consummation when he declares that if we suffer with Christ, we shall also be glorified together with him. And when he asserts that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The whole creation waits for the revealing of this glory, for Paul goes on to say that the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. 
And he adds finally, And not only they, but also ourselves, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit the redemption of our body. In view of such a glorious destiny, at which I dare not do more than hint, shall we not cheerfully welcome the processes, however painful they may be by which we are to reach it? And shall we not strive eagerly and earnestly to be laborers together with God in helping to bring it about? He is the great master builder, but he wants our cooperation in building up the fabric of our characters. And he exhorts us to take heed how we build. We are all of us at every moment of our lives engaged in this building. Sometimes we build with gold and silver and precious stones, and sometimes we build with wood and hay and stubble. And we are solemnly warned that every man's work is to be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. There is no escaping this. We cannot hope when that day comes to conceal our wood and hay and stubble, however successfully we may have managed to do so beforehand. To my mind, there is no more solemn passage in the whole Bible than the one in Galatians, which says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It is the awful inevitableness of this that is so awe-inspiring. It is far worse than any arbitrary punishment, for punishment can sometimes be averted. But there is no possibility of altering the working of a natural law such as this. In a catechism I saw, there were the following questions and answers. Question. What is the reward for generosity? Answer. More generosity. Question. What is the punishment for meanness? Answer. More meanness. No catechism ever spoke more truly. We all of us know it for ourselves. In the parable of the talents, our Lord illustrates this inevitable law. The condemnation on the unfaithful servant may have sometimes seemed a little unfair, but it was only the reaping of what the servant had sowed. Take, therefore, the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. This is no arbitrary pronouncement, but is simply a revelation of the inherent nature of things from which none of us can escape. But in order to be laborers together with God, we must not only build with his materials, but also by his processes, and of these we are often very ignorant. Our idea of building is of hard, laborious work done in the sweat of our brow, but God's idea is far different. Paul tells us what it is. We all, he says, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Our work, then, is to behold. And as we behold, the Lord effects the marvelous transformation, and we are changed into the same image by the Spirit of the Lord. This means, of course, to behold not in our earthly sense of merely looking at a thing, but in the divine sense of really seeing the thing. We are told to behold with our spiritual eyes the glory of the Lord, and are to continue beholding it. The glory of the Lord does not mean, however, a great shine or halo. The real glory of the Lord is the glory of what He is and what He does, the glory of character. And it is this we are to behold. Let me give an illustration. Someone offends me, and I am tempted to get angry and retaliate. But I look at Christ and think of what he would have done, and dwell upon the thought of his gentleness and meekness and his love for the offending one. And as I look, I begin to want to be like him, and I ask in faith that I may be made a partaker of his nature. And anger and revenge die out in my heart, and I love my enemy, and I long to serve him. 
It is by this sort of beholding Christ that we are to be changed into his image, and the nearer we keep to him, the more rapid the change will be. I have heard of a wonderful mirror known to science, which is called the parabolic mirror. It is a hollow cone lined with a mirror all over its inside surface. It possesses the power of focusing rays of light in different degrees of intensity in proportion to the increasing nearness to its meeting point at the top end of the cone, the power being more and more intense as the terminal point is approached. It has been discovered by science that at a certain stage in this advance toward the interior point, where all the sides of the mirror meet in absolute oneness, the power of the focus concentrates all the light-giving properties of the sun's rays into such an intense brilliancy as to make visible things never before discerned by the human eye, rendering even flesh transparent and enabling us to see through the outer covering of our bodies to the inner operations beneath. Advancing a little farther into the interior of our mirror, the heat properties of the sun's rays are so concentrated as to generate a heat sufficient to melt iron in 16 seconds and to dissipate in 14 seconds the alloy of gold, leaving only the solid globule of the pure metal. Advancing farther still, the photographing properties of the sunlight are so concentrated as to impress an ineffaceable image of the mirror upon anything that is passed for only one second through the focus. Advancing still farther, nearly to the point of oneness, the magnetizing powers of light are so concentrated that anything exposed to it for a single instant becomes a powerful magnet drawing afterward all things to itself. Whether all this is scientifically correct or not, I am not enough of a scientist to know, but at least it will serve as an allegory to show the progress of the soul as it is changed from glory to glory in its evolution into his image. As we first behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we come to the light focus, which reveals our sinfulness and our need. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Second, as we draw closer, we reach the heat focus, where all of our dross and reprobate silver is burned up. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Third, as we draw closer still, we come to the photographing focus, where the image of Christ is indelibly impressed upon our souls, and we are made like him because we see him as he is. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Fourth and finally, we come to the point of oneness. We reach the magnetic focus where our character is so conformed to Christ that men seeing it will be irresistibly drawn to glorify our Father which is in heaven. If we would be conformed to the image of Christ, then we must live closer and ever closer to him. We must become better and better acquainted with his character and his ways. We must look at things through his eyes and judge all things by his standards. It is not by effort or by wrestling that this conformity is to be accomplished. It is by assimilation. According to a natural law, we grow like those with whom we associate, and the stronger character always exercises the controlling influence. And, as divine law is all one with natural law, only working in a higher sphere and with more unhindered power, it need not seem mysterious to us that we should become like Christ by spiritual union with him. But again, I must repeat that this union with Christ cannot come by our own efforts, no matter how strenuous they may be. Christ is to dwell in our hearts by faith, and he can dwell there in no other way. Paul, when he tells us that he was crucified with Christ, says, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ liveth in me. This is the transforming secret. 
If Christ liveth in me, his life must, in the very nature of things, be manifested in my mortal flesh, and I cannot fail to be changed from glory to glory into his image. Our Lord's teaching about this is very emphatic. Abide in me, he says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except to abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. This is literally true. If we abide in him and he in us, we can no more help bring forth fruit than can the branches of a flourishing vine. In the very nature of things, the fruit must come. But we cannot take the old man into Christ. We must put off the old man with his deeds before we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle, in writing to the Colossians, bases his exhortations to holiness of life on the fact that they had done this. Lie not to one another, he says, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Sin must disappear at the incoming of Christ, and no soul that is not prepared to surrender all that is contrary to his will can hope to welcome him. The old man must be put off if the new man is to reign. But both the putting off and the putting on must be done by faith. There is no other way. As I have tried to explain elsewhere, we must move from our personality, our ego, our will out of self and into Christ. We must reckon ourselves to be dead to self and alive only to God. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The same kind of reckoning of faith which brings the forgiveness of sins within our grasp brings also this union with Christ. To those who do not understand the law of faith, this will no doubt be as great a mystery as the secrets of gravitation were before the law of gravitation was discovered. But to those who understand it, the law of faith works as unerringly and as definitely as the law of gravitation and produces its results as certainly. No one can read the seventh chapter of Hebrews and fail to see that faith is an all-conquering force. I believe myself it is the creative force of the universe. It is the higher law that controls all the lower laws beneath it. And what looks like a miracle is simply the working of this higher controlling law. Faith is, as I say, the law of creation. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. We are told that God spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And our Lord tells us that if we have faith, we can do the same. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God, for verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Faith, we are told, calls those things which are not as though they were, and in so calling them brings them into being. Therefore, although we cannot see any tangible sign of change, when by faith we put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and by faith put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, yet nevertheless it has really been done, and faith has accomplished it. I cannot explain this theologically, but I can fearlessly assert that it is a tremendous practical reality and that those souls who abandon the self-life and give themselves up to the Lord to be fully possessed by Him do find that He takes possession of the inner springs of their well-being and works there to will and to do of His good pleasure. 
Paul prayed for the Ephesians that Christ might dwell in their hearts by faith, and this is the whole secret of being conformed to his image. If Christ is dwelling in my heart, I must necessarily be Christ-like. I cannot be unkind or irritable or self-seeking or dishonest, but his gentleness and sweetness and tender compassion and loving submission to the will of his Father must be manifested in my daily walk and conversation. We shall not be fully changed into the image of Christ until he shall appear, and we shall see him as he is. But meanwhile, according to our measure, the life of Jesus is to be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Is it made manifest in ours? Are we so conformed to the image of Christ that men, in seeing us, see a glimpse of him also? A Methodist minister's wife told me that at one time, when they had moved to a new place, her little boy came in after the first afternoon of play and exclaimed joyfully, Oh, mother, I have found such a lovely, good little girl to play with that I never want to go away again. I am very glad, darling, said the loving mother, happy over her child's happiness. What is the little girl's name? Oh, replied the child with sudden solemnity, I think her name is Jesus. Why, Frank, exclaimed the horrified mother, what do you mean? Well, mother, he said deprecatingly, she was so lovely that I did not know what she should be called but Jesus. Are our lives so Christ-like? that anyone could have such a thought of us? Is it patent to all those around us that we have been with Jesus? Is it not, alas, often just the contrary? Are not some of us so cross and uncomfortable in our living that exactly the opposite thing would have to be said about us? Paul says we are to be epistles of Christ, known and read of all men, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. I firmly believe that if every child of God all the world over would begin from this day onward to be an epistle of Christ, living a truly Christ-like life at home and abroad, it would not be a month before the churches would be crowded with inquirers coming in to see what was the religion that could so transform human nature into something divine. The world is full of unbelievers in the reality of the Christian religion, and nothing will convince them but facts which they cannot disprove. We must meet them with transformed lives. If they see that whereas once we were cross, now we are sweet, once we were proud, now we are humble, once we were fretful, now we are patient and calm, and if we are able to testify that it is the religion of Christ that has wrought this change, they cannot help but be impressed. A Christian man who, on account of his earnest work, had gained a great reputation for piety, had unfortunately gained an equally great reputation for a bad temper and a sharp tongue. But at last, for some reason, which no one could understand, a change seemed to come over him, and his temper and his tongue became as sweet and as gentle as they had been before violent and sharp. His friends watched and wondered, and at last one of them approached him on the subject and asked if he had changed his religion. No, replied the man, I have not changed my religion, but I have at last let my religion change me. How much has our religion changed us? It is very easy to have a church religion, or a prayer meeting religion, or a Christian work religion, but it is altogether a different thing to have an everyday religion. To show piety at home is one of the most vital parts of Christianity, but it is also one far too rare, and it is not at all an uncommon thing to find Christians who do their righteousness before outsiders to be seen of men, but who fail lamentably in showing their piety at home. I knew a father of a family who was so powerful in prayer at the weekly prayer meeting and so impressive in exhortation that the whole church was much edified by his piety, but who, when he went home after the meetings, was so cross and ugly that his wife and family were afraid to say a word in his presence. And when thou prayest, 
Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. These words, they have their reward, seem to me among the most solemn in the Bible. What we do to be seen of men is seen of men, and that is all there is to it. There is no conformity to the image of Christ in this sort of righteousness. The righteousness that is Christ-like is the righteousness that bears everyday trials cheerfully and is patient under home provocations, that returns good for evil and meets all of the homely friction of daily life with sweetness and gentleness, that suffereth long and is kind, that envieth not, that vaunteth not itself, that is not puffed up and seeketh not its own, is not easily provoked and thinketh no evil, that beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This is what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. Do we know anything of such righteousness as this? We sometimes talk about performing what we call our religious duties, meaning by this expression our church services or our stated seasons of devotion or our Christian work of one sort or another. And we never dream that it is far more our religious duty to be Christ-like in our daily walk and conversation than to be faithful even in these other things, desirable as they may be in themselves. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was a righteousness of words and phrases and of ceremonial observances, and this is very often impressive to outsiders. But because it was nothing more, our Lord condemns it in unmeasured terms. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not left the other undone. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. And he adds, Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. It is very easy to say beautiful things about the religious life, but to be what we say is an altogether different matter. I know a Sunday school teacher who has been teaching her scholars a great deal about casting all your cares on the Lord and trusting Him in times of trial, and they have been very much impressed. But at last, a trouble came into the life of this teacher, and some of her scholars saw her in her own home while it lasted. To their amazement and distress, they saw her fretting and chafing and worrying and complaining, acting in short, just as if there was no God to trust, or as if His ways were not ways of love and goodness. It was all object lesson to those children that undid all the good that the teacher's previous teaching had seemed likely to accomplish. And one of them, who was very observant, said to me triumphantly, I thought it could not be true. While she was telling us about how we might trust the Lord for everything, and now I see it was only goody talk, for she doesn't do it herself. A cross Christian or an anxious one, a discouraged gloomy Christian, a doubting Christian, a complaining Christian, an exacting Christian, a selfish, cruel, hard-hearted Christian, a self-indulgent Christian, a Christian with a sharp tongue or a bitter spirit, a Christian, in short, who is not Christ-like, may preach to the winds with as much hope of success as to preach to his own family or friends who see him as he is. There is no escape from this inevitable law of things, and we may as well recognize it at once. If we want our loved ones to trust the Lord, volumes of talk about it will not be one thousandth part as convincing to them as the sight of a little real trust on our part in the time of need. The longest prayer and the loudest preaching are of no avail in any family circle, however they may do in the pulpit, unless there is on the part of the preacher a living out of the things preached.
some Christians seem to think that the fruits which the Bible calls for are some form of outward religious work, such as holding meetings, visiting the poor, conduction of charitable institutions, and so forth. Whereas the fact is, the Bible scarcely mentions these at all as fruits of the Spirit, but declares that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. A Christ-like character must necessarily be the fruit of Christ's indwelling. Other things will no doubt be the outcome of his character, but first and foremost comes the character, or all the rest is but a hollow sham. A late writer has said, A man can never be more than his character makes him. A man can never do more, nor better, than deliver or embody that which is his character. Nothing valuable can come out of a man that is not first in the man. Character must stand behind and back everything up. The sermon, the poem, the picture, the book, none of them is worth a straw without it. In order to become conformed to the image of Christ, we must of necessity be made partakers of the divine nature. And where this is the case, that divine nature must necessarily manifest itself. Our tastes, our wishes, our purposes will become like Christ's taste, wishes, and purposes. We shall change eyes with him and see things as he sees them. This is inevitable, for where the divine nature is, its fruits cannot fail to be manifest, and where they are not manifest, we are forced to conclude that that individual, no matter how loud his professions, has not yet been made a partaker of the divine nature. I can hear someone asking, but do you really mean to say that in order to be made partakers of the divine nature, we must cease from our own efforts entirely and must simply, by faith, put on Christ and must let him live in us and work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure? And do you believe he will then actually do it? To this I answer most emphatically, yes. I mean just that. I mean that if we abandon ourselves entirely to him, he comes to abide in us and is himself our life. We must commit our whole lives to him, our thoughts, our words, our daily walk, our down-sittings, our uprisings. By faith we must abandon ourselves and, as it were, move over into Christ and abide in him. By faith we must put off the old man, and by faith we must put on the new man. By faith we must reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, as truly dead as alive. By faith we must realize that our daily life is Christ living in us, and ceasing from our own works we must suffer him to work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is no longer truth about him that must fill our hearts, but it is himself, the living, loving, glorious Christ, who will, if we let him, in very deed make us his dwelling place, and who will reign and rule within us, and subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. It was no mere figure of speech when our Lord, in that wonderful Sermon on the Mount, said to his disciples, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He meant, of course, according to our measure. But he meant that reality of being conformed to his image to which we have been predestined. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, we are shown how it is to be brought about. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is to be by his working in us, and not by our working in ourselves, that this purpose of God in our creation is to be accomplished. And if it should look, as regards some of us, that we are far too removed from any conformity to the image of Christ for such a transformation ever to be wrought, 
we must remember that our Maker is not finished with us yet. The day will come if we do not hinder, when the work begun in Genesis shall be finished in Revelation, and the whole creation as well as ourselves shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Tis shall thy will be done for me or mine, and I be made a thing not after thine, my own and full of paltriest pretense? Shall I be born of God or of mere man, be made like Christ or some other plan? What though thy work in me transcends my sense, too fine, too high for me to understand? I trust entirely, O Lord, with thy labor grand. I have not knowledge, wisdom, insight, thought, nor understanding fit to justify thee in thy work, O perfect. Thou hast brought me up to this, and lo, what thou hast wrought, I cannot call it good, but I can cry, O enemy, the maker hath not done. One day thou shalt behold, and from the sight wilt run. End of chapter. Recorded by Daisy Reynolds, Dallas, Texas.